When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Welcome to Millennial Property with John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. It is Q&A time today. So as always, we've got some unbelievable questions from our Facebook group. Some of you have reached out to Glenn personally. I don't know why when you could have come straight to us, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's good fun. There's uh, a lot of interesting topics in a time that's, I wouldn't call it volatile, but it's just a bit of a shift in thinking and a, and a change in where the markets are maybe heading. And we're going to talk in future episodes about that as well. But before anything else, Emily, uh, let's get into it. Let's do it. So we do have a mixed bag. Some of these questions are from Glenn's Instagram, actually, and some are from the Facebook group. So I'm going to kick it off with one that um, is probably quite topical and has been asked in a couple of different ways recently. But Megs Fraser asks, what kind of buffers for repayments should be looked at with the rates rising? Mm, Very good one, isn't it? Good question, because we're only going to go up in one direction, aren't we, really, when it comes to the cash rate, interest rates over the next really possibly two to five years. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got two separate parts of this. Um, I think we've got the cost of living going up and we've got our personal cash flow situation where our listeners would understand that that should always be under control regardless of our time in life and and what the cost of living is going to be. We do have to adjust it from time to time. And this is one of those times where we say, right, at the Bowser, it's costing us more at at Woolies or Coles or Aldi or wherever it's costing us more. Everywhere we go, it is costing us more and we may not have had a pay rise. So, We need to understand that, yes, our emergency buffers are in place and we know what we're spending and what we're earning. A property perspective, we we need to think, again, always should be thinking this as we talk about, but we need to know what the cost it now is to run our property. So if we're running a variable rate um, and that's increased by now half a percent, what does that mean for us? So we need to recalculate our numbers and and really get an after- tax perspective. But before we go to our accountant and get our tax return, we need to know what our before tax amount is. So that's the interest amount. If we're paying principal, we have to calculate that. And then the true running costs of our property and see what that position is uh, is for us as a uh, as a as, as a single income or a joint income, whatever it might be. So we, we don't really have a figure, uh, uh, I, I don't anyway, when people say to me, how much should your property buffers be? Mm. I, I work it off, well, what is your yield in your property to understand how much you might need to keep you asleep at night? And that's the other thing, you know, if you have had a long-term investment property, have you increased the rent accordingly? A lot of people do fall short on 
uh, thinking about their property as a business um, and there is inflation, things are increasing and without being too brutal with your rental increases and not damaging the tenants too much, you do need to consider the fact that maybe some of the extra cash flow does come from increasing those rents if it hasn't been done so in the last couple of years. Um, that's one way. But also I know a lot of people that I speak to, they clearly have their rental, uh, sorry, their investment properties set up and they might put in, for example, $100 per month extra because it might be a positive cash flow. Maybe that now changes to 120 or 130, you know, that slight extra buffer to account for those increases. And of course, you'll get rates and water increase as well on a yearly basis. So things are probably only ever going to go up in terms of the cost. You need to work out where that money comes from. Mm, ab- absolutely you do. And uh, I've seen a few property cycles come and go in different regions. And, and as a portfolio holder, I've seen interest rates rise and I've seen them decrease and I've seen them rise and I've seen them decrease again to where we are now. And and one thing I, if there's one bit of advice I can give uh, from, a, from a father figure, Emily, today, <laughs> uh, it, it would be, I see a lot of investors acting emotionally and saying, right, I'm going to pick off the lowest hanging fruit here and sell one of these properties because that's going to relieve me of my personal cash flow issues um, with only to look back in regret in two, three, four, five years' time when they're in a better cash flow position and think, oh, yeah, maybe I could have changed a few things and actually just kept that property because look now what it's maybe worth. So, yeah, really understand the numbers uh, but – Know what you're up for each month and forecast that into it. And if you, if you, as you said, with the rent increase, Emily, we're not, we're not about, uh, I suppose, putting the rents up unrealistically. But we, it is running a business, um, and and then we need to act accordingly, don't we? Yeah, most definitely, and it probably applies to people who have had a tenant very long term. You know, I know people who have had the same tenant from day dot and they've owned the property for seven years, Uh, but there does come a time where you do need to adjust. Otherwise, you will find yourself in maybe a bit of a deficit um, and and not running it properly. So if it was just owner rock, um, a lot of the, and this may be an expansion of this question is, well, how much do we forecast for future interest rate rises? Like... What are you telling people? Because I'm saying, like, if the if the cash rate is X now, how much further has it got to go, um, and what can we handle? And we know that the banks are lending us at around two to three percent above what the actual rate is today, right? So. I would forecast a 5% interest rate. And if you can handle that P&I uh, on your own rock, then I think you should be pretty uh, pretty well placed. And we know that fixed rates today definitely have a four in them. So that might be something to consider in your forecasting. What, what, what are you saying? Yeah, um, similar, although I do lean a lot on the mortgage brokers that the clients are dealing with to do those forecasts accordingly because they've got little spreadsheets and data sources that can help with that. But I also am very cautious when clients come to us and they are basically putting every last dollar of savings they have into the purchase, that is of concern to me. And I would always recommend that they, you know, consider what their buffers are. What if the hot water system blows up in week one? What have Mm. you got there to accommodate yourself? And then, of course, with rising rates, you know, ha- what buffer have you got? If you're not going to increase your salary and you can't drastically reduce your living expenses, where's that money going to come from and over what period of time? Yeah, and, and that's actually a good point. Maybe 
now uh, more than ever, we're thinking about changing our strategy slightly to know that we're buying something that's maybe in a better condition than one up the road that's going to cost us 50 grand less because we won't have the, the ongoing issues potentially of, uh, of, of the maintenance and upkeep. Correct. Yeah, I am seeing fully ready to go renovated properties um, chasing premiums because of that um, avoidance of any work that needs to be done for the new owner. Yeah, and and getting off topic, but is that also a case of, well, the cost of materials has gone up, the cost of getting trades has gone up, the the delay time in, in renovations has blown out, all of that may be culminating as well. Yeah, people are very aware that's the case. And unless they're in trades themselves or have access to good trades, they are avoiding anything more than a cosmetic update. Yeah, lick of paint and a bit of carpet. Mm. Mm. Totally. Very good. Bit of lipstick. <laughs> bit of lipstick on a pig. All right. Uh, so, uh, Mitch White, great question here. What are the positives slash negatives to building a whole portfolio as a JV, a joint venture? Given I am unable to use the equity out of the first property alone, just wondering if it is worth continuing to buy properties with younger brother as opposed to going solo. Great question. Mm. There are lots of pros and cons with that, really. I mean, even in the first instance of some people getting in to the market, the only choice they have is a JV because they've got more leverage. But then where to from there? Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. And and you know what? If Glenn, if you're listening, hi, how are you? Uh, we've butted heads against this for years. When I say years, oh, probably five years. It's an ongoing years. debate. That's <laughs> an ongoing debate because <laughs> I'm pro JV. Uh, I would openly, honestly say 50% of my portfolio has been and probably will continue to be JV. Um, I just love what it brings to the table in the sense that uh, I, I may want to diverse my portfolio. I may not have the cash funds. I may not have the borrowing capacity. There's a whole myriad of reasons that say, well, I want to go into the market now or a particular market. I think the timing is good. However, I can't do it alone or I want to save some cash for another a reason. So I'm actually going to, to um, bring in a JV in the form of a, a friend or family and, and and get it done that way. But um, I, I just, I think there are many positives, but with many positives come many negatives. Um, so the, the biggest one is I, I go in as half owner, I put up half the, half the money potentially, uh, but I'm also taking half the profit. So we've, we've got to split everything down the middle, don't we? Then it becomes a question, 50% of something versus 100% of nothing. Yeah. You know, what are you better off with? That's right. Um, and, and that's, in my experience, has always been, well, 50% of something was always the winner there um, as opposed to doing nothing at all. So I think, Mitch, uh, the positives are pretty clear. I think that the whole 50% of something is is a good outcome. Um, the, the ability to get into the market now as opposed to maybe waiting another uh, 12 months, as, as he said, because, yeah, he's, um, he's unable to get the equity out. Maybe that's a servicing thing or there's just not enough equity there to begin with. So he's got to sit on his hands and as impatient Australians, we maybe don't want to do that. So, yeah, I think the more so the negatives for me to, to outline to others what are the implications of going into a JV. And, and, and in some cases, I like someone that's married or not married and just has a partner uh, – it's it's pretty much a JV anyway, isn't it? Um, the the only yeah. difference is we've brought the funds in and pulled them together and said now we're going to buy a house together. 
Yeah, exactly. I think the other question around JVs is in terms of looking at the purchase price of what you can get into, let's just say for argument's sake, you had 50000 to put into a property and you could take a 90% loan. So that equals roughly a 500k purchase thereabouts versus putting that towards something with an equal amount with a JV partner now brings you up to the million dollar mark. And is that a better grade of property in a better area that would outperform something that is at the 500k mark, even though you'd have 100% ownership? Yes. I actually think that's where the real debate sort of lies. And I have seen a lot of success in JVs where you have got a higher purchase price because generally speaking, it does equal a better asset class of property. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good point there. And, and we're working with a client at the moment who uh, he has a experience of investment properties, but now he's brought his sister in who's a first-time investor and she's wanting to, I suppose, um, hold hands through the process for her first experience as opposed to going it alone. Um, But yeah, to your point, it means that they can borrow more as a result, which gives them potentially a better product. So that's the real um, benefit of that JV. But uh, I, I think... The things that can go maybe unnoticed or overlooked or blasé about is if we're brother and sister or we're good friends, which is usually what JVs are about, mm. um, it's quite easy to, to say, oh, she'll be right, mate, and, and just a handshake or not even a handshake deal. Uh, I think we need to make sure we get something written and drawn up but that's legally binding. Uh, it, it shouldn't offset the relationship. It, it's just a formal agreement to know that we're going to spend a million dollars here or 600000 or whatever the number may be. So we need to treat this seriously and, and treat it as a business. And in my experience, Mitch, we need to have exit plans. So we need to have our 12-month, two-year, three-year check-ins and we need to be on the same page to begin with, don't we? Yeah, and I think it can't hurt to have the relevant paperwork in place. You don't need it till you need it. Mm. And you'd be kicking yourself if you didn't get it if you really do need it. So certainly be across those sorts of things, regardless of the relationship with the person that you're entering the JV with. Yeah. So, and I'm not sure if this is Mitch's case, but what I have seen in a lot of JVs is situations changing uh, whilst we've got the property. So we've got Mm. to choose wisely. So when we're going out there recruiting for a JV partner, it sounds like he's already got younger brother lined up, but what can change in our life that are potentially a game changer for that particular property? Well, the first one that springs to mind is, well, I'm getting married and we're wanting to buy a house and we're wanting to use those funds from the JV property to actually get ourselves into that property. So, okay, now that's derailed the whole JV outcome to begin with. So really choose wisely to know that, okay, we're locking away the next three to five years or whatever time frame you pin on. Uh, that we're not selling that property regardless, and uh, and I think that'll serve you you better than than most uh, who don't think about those longer term issues. Indeed. Now, flicking back to Glenn's Instagram questions, uh, it's a, I don't know if it's a first name. I think it might be someone's username. Sharitz has asked, "When do you know you're ready for your second? Now. I assume <laughs> second second property, not second child or second car or whatever it might be. Uh, but it's such a great question because a lot of people, there is a lot of build up to your, to your first property, whether that's an investment or your first home. It's an education piece in the first instance, the first time you're doing it. 
And we all know how long it takes to save a deposit and even get to the point of being satisfied with a property that you're happy to put pen to paper on. So Mm. the prospect of thinking of your second for a lot of people doesn't come until a couple of years after owning your first. And depending how well you bought and what you bought will also um, feed into the equity piece that you might be able to withdraw as well or lean on and leverage to get into your second. But in terms of how do you know you're ready, what would you say maybe are the key indicators that, you know, aside from monetary, you know, deposits and things like that, Yeah. what would we generally look for to know that you're ready for your second property? Mm. I'm glad you specified property. We, we didn't actually plan for our second child, but we did oh, plan for our, for our second property. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know what that tells us. But I, I think I always think to myself, well, what are the things stopping us from buying property as an investor, that is? Um, and I always come back to two main things. It's, it's finance. Have I got the cash or equity? Mm-hmm. And will the banks lend me money as the first part of this, right? So if, the, if we get the green light on both those sides, our deposit and the banks lending us money, then that's one component of it. The second component is our risk profile. Uh, have we got our head around wanting to buy a second property or is it a FOMO thing or is it uh, my friends have done this so I think we should be doing that because we're similar age and we hang out together and and I'll fear I'll miss the market and, and I won't be able to retire when they do and all that sort of stuff. So if we can get a green light to both of those things, I think we're actually ready. Uh, now, there may be little different facets of those questions that we ask ourselves and say, well, yeah, uh, my mindset says I'm ready, but I've got a fear of the the current state of the economy or the, the government or negative gearing rule changes. Now, they're things out of our control. So those two things that I've spoken about, they're actually factors that are in our control, which is the way we should invest. Then we can strategically thought, think about or, or research all those external things that we have absolutely no control over. So like I had a, had a client who's literally just settled on a property last week. What's the first thing she does? rings up and says, well, actually, we've got some equity sitting around now on, on our PPR, principal place of residence. Now I want to buy our second home. No, um, I suppose, ambitions to buy their second home until now because, okay, I don't mind this whole investing thing. Now I'm ready to go again. And that's what I commonly see anyway. Yeah, I think it's a comfortability piece as well in there and also risk profile, as you mentioned as well, John. But also just keep in mind, you don't have to own more than one property too. Sometimes people, you know, think about this accumulation of, of property and how many do I own? And we've often um, get questions in around one property at, you know, 800K versus two properties at 400K. What does that look like? So if you're ready for your second, you're considering your second, of course, there's factors that you need to um, talk through and work through before you purchase, but also don't feel that if you're listening to this, you have to buy more than one property. Even to get to one property is a huge achievement in itself. And yes, there's ambitious people out there who want to buy multiple and that's awesome for them. But don't get caught up with the crowd if buying a second actually isn't necessarily the right thing for you and your circumstances. Mm. And maybe Schrewitz, uh, that's what they're thinking at the moment is, is it actually right for me because of the crowd making the noise around it? So yeah, it's, it's, it's the quality of your portfolio, isn't it? Indeed. I think we're going to take a quick break. We've gotten carried away with our Q&A, but we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back for some more. 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right. So uh, Kendra Egu, I think I hopefully pronounced that correctly. What to be wary of when buying unregistered land? What are the hidden costs and how can you save? I'm just going to be totally honest here, John. This is your domain, not mine, because I have not dealt with unregistered land. Uh, we, I haven't had much experience in buying house and land, so okay, I'm so, learning too. All right, so let's firstly clear up what unregistered land is, and I think we've explained it previously, but let's let's go again for, for our first-time listeners, and welcome if you are. Uh, unregistered land basically means that there was a, a, a paddock back in the day where a developer bought, said, yeah, I reckon this can be developed, maybe spoken to a town planner and said, yeah, I agree, we, with, some, um, with some rules and regulations around it and some conditions, we can get this thing registered and, and you can maybe chop it up into, let's say, 30 lots, so 30 blocks of individual lands that uh, 30 individuals can then go and purchase. So the developer fast forwards and, and gets that approval to develop that land, um, chop it into their 30, and they have those 30 blocks pegged out. So there literally is pegs out there. When you drive out into the paddock, you might not even have roads to it yet, but there are pegs out there that mark what is going to be individual pieces of land. So at that stage, when there's pegs out, you can uh, buy unregistered land off that landowner, and there'll be a price there that uh, you've agreed on, uh, but until it becomes registered, meaning that the councillors actually approve that to go and build something on, which is usually a formality, not always, but mm -hmm. usually, uh, you can't get lending on that because the banks are saying, well, yeah, we've got some pegs there, but when it's not 100% that uh, this is going to come through. So uh, we, we can't lend you money yet, but come back to us when it is registered. So what are we wary of? Well, we're wary that we can't get finance until the, the time that it does become registered. So mm. in a lot of cases, and I would not buy unregistered land without this, uh, the, the, the case should be that you might put down a, a nominal fee, 
$1,000, which is fully refundable uh, should the you not want to proceed at time of registration. Okay, so that means that the risk to you is basically non-existent. It's mine to give back, right? I've put down my two grand. I'll get it back if I don't want to proceed because my situation in my life has changed. Um, So Kendra's asked about the hidden costs and how you can save. Well, I don't think you there is any hidden costs. So that's where you need your uh, conveyancer. Um, and your team of people to, to look over all the documentation to ensure that everything is fully refundable. Because presumably if it's unregistered, right, there wouldn't be an official contract to sale because they wouldn't actually have like the title plan and the lot number allocated, right? So are we saying that if we're putting down the $2,000, it's refundable, there's like a one pager that sort of mm. says, you know, what it's committed to? Correct. And, yeah, cor- yep. correct. So you, it would normally be a one pager, just like you mentioned, uh, this is the lot number, this is the address, okay, here's your money, here's a deposit fully refundable, sign off on it, date it, away we go. Because registration could be 12 months, 18 months, and, and in some cases, depending on the, the the speed that the councils work, it could be two years or more. So mm-hmm. a lot can change in our life. I don't want to go committing to something when uh, there's some uncertainty around those timeframes. So yeah, that, that eliminates pretty much all of Kendra's concerns, I would imagine. If someone's trying to sell you something that's maybe going to cost you five or 10 grand to commit to and that's not, not refundable, I wouldn't be proceeding um, on that basis. So yeah. And that money presumably sits in like a trust account somewhere? Yeah, correct. Not to be spent and yeah. could be easily given back. Yeah, awesome. There you go. I learned something today too because I've not known about unregistered land because I haven't personally bought it or bought it for anybody. But um, I assume particularly with a lot more greenfield estates, you know, coming around and we need more land cut up really to um, accommodate the amount of demand out there. Mm, So it may become more common and helpful for someone listening. Yeah. And and you're right. We're not cutting it up uh, quick enough. So councils cannot physically move faster um, to be able to get that out ready to build on and there's a lot of moving parts to make it happening to, to make it happen quicker but uh, yeah I, I'm I suppose uh, it's all doom and gloom from my end on unregistered land but I actually like it as a concept because you can commit to something but not fully commit financially and mm. when time comes to register okay I'm looking at some values hang on a minute I could actually uh, it's gone up 40 grand without me putting any money down. So there's a lot of positives to unregistered land for sure. But uh, yeah, story for another day in respect to the whole strategy piece. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of questions that have come through around the property market at the moment and the impact on the property market. John and I are actually going to do an episode specific to what we're both seeing in the market and what we think the impacts will be. So we'll sort of hold those questions more for an episode focused around that. But one question that's unrelated to the current market is actually comes from Laura and Laura asks, what are tenants' rights when owners are selling? Now, there are different uh, rules state by state and I know Victoria had an update in the rules as of March last year because let's face it, if you're a rent vester or you're just a renter in general, Having a rental property as your place to call home can come with its challenges in that the landlord can decide to sell. 
But it has become pretty evident to me over the last couple of years that rules and regulations are there in place to help support the tenant in finding another property, giving enough notice of time to accommodate that. It will probably mean you are disrupted to a degree of um, having the property available for open homes and access from the agent to appraise the property and things like that. But Look, I don't know every single state. I do know in Victoria that the minimum time frame, if it is outside a fixed term lease, so if you're already in a 12-month period, you can't be vacated prior to the end of that 12 months. But if you're on a month-by-month contract, the minimum time frame of notice to vacate is 60 days from a signed contract of sale. So you've got two months to sort yourself out after that point in time. Um I don't know if you have experience with other states, John, as to what that looks like, but is it along similar lines of notice period? Yeah, totally. I think um, you're right. It's very specific to the state that you're living in. So um, you you can Google Tenancy Acts Queensland or something like that to, to get yep. your relevant state um, data. But there, over the last couple of years, and Vic is a good example of that, they've, they've definitely, uh, I suppose, levelled the playing field, you'd call it, to, to make it uh, a little bit more fairer for the tenants, just to mm-hmm. not be thrown out for no particular reason, um, and it, and in some cases it's actually hard or very extremely hard for the landlord to remove the tenant from their place, which is um, yeah is a debate in itself, isn't it? Like the mm-hmm. the landlord's running a business, the the tenant's running a life. Like it's it's yeah. a it's yeah everyone's got a got a side to take there and and I'm very wary and very I suppose compassionate of the tenant in respect to giving them adequate time and I think that that's what it comes down to is the property manager actually being compassionate in that process to know that hang on we're not going to leave you in the lurch we we will find something else for you to move into uh, but these are the rules and regulations within this state and uh, and and the the landlord is hopefully pretty pretty flexible with that but at the same time they have to pay the bills and just a suggestion i guess as well because you we never want to sell out of a need to sell we obviously want to be you know sell at the right time but as a suggestion to landlords slash vendors it would be an idea to consider at the point in time that a tenant is vacating maybe to reassess your property portfolio is now a good time to me for me to consider the sale of this particular property. It is much easier to sell when it's vacant because access is limitless. It's presented well. <laughs> You're not worrying about tenants having it nicely presented uh, and so and probably causes the lease disruption. I often do feel for tenants when um, someone has decided to sell their property two months into a 12-month agreement and those tenants may feel that, you know, really we've only got another 10 months here potentially before we're told to leave because, this, you know, that person wants to move in. So maybe being a bit aware of that, not saying you have to sell while it's vacant, but being aware of those vacancy times might actually play to your advantage in terms of access and sale. Yeah, for sure. And, and improvements as well. Like, well, it can align well in the, okay, now I'm going to give it a, a lick of paint or replace the carpets or do a kitchen or, or whatever it might be. And for mm-hmm. tax purposes, that could also work well depending on, on the timing that you're doing that. But uh, yeah, just, uh, I, I think as a landlord, you you respect everyone's position in the decision making um, mm-hmm. and, and you've got to make the best decision for everyone out there, but follow the, the, the tenancy laws. And, and you may have some tenants that say, you know what, 
Um, I know it's a minimum three months notice, but I'm going to move out in two weeks because I'm going to live with someone else or whatever it might be. So yeah, be transparent and and plenty of notice. Indeed. I think that pretty much brings us to the end of our Q&A episode today and we try and do one of these at least once a month a Q&A because it always gives a good variety of what you guys are wanting to know and what you'd like to understand so always feel free to put them in the My Millennial Money Facebook group if this is your very first episode you're listening to today and you're not familiar with that literally just type in Facebook My Millennial Money and you'll see a group there with got like nearly 40,000 members I think in that group it's pretty extensive now so go and check it out and just tag John or I or both and hashtag property and we will attend to your questions in the next episode for sure of Q&A. Not guaranteed um, by any means but I I look at this long list ahead of us and think yeah we've got plenty of content up our sleeve which is awesome so thanks for everyone for sending them through and um, yeah hopefully we'll get to your question at some stage throughout the journey. Indeed and if you had a question about the market itself and how it's performing right now we're dedicating a particular episode to that which is most likely coming coming out next week so keep your eyes and ears attuned to that and we'll be covering off on it in more detail until then we will chat soon we will indeed bye Bye. we acknowledge the dark and young people traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present we extend that respect to aboriginal and torres strait islander peoples who may listen to our podcast Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I had the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.